Today's video was recorded on June 21st, 2023. Today's lesson is part of an overall series that we have going. We're calling it Bible 101. And today we'll be exploring the good news. What do you mean by the good news? So this Bible 101 series, we're trying to cover some of the foundational concepts in the Bible that perhaps we've lost touch with the original meaning. It's uh, grown barnacles over time. We have to go down and scrub off these concepts so that we can see them clearly. And understanding what the good news is, well, it's foundational to our Christian faith. What are the Bible writers talking about when they use that Hebrew or Greek word that we translate good news? And I think the answer will likely surprise you because in our modern context, the concept of the good news has morphed into something that's altogether different than what it meant in the first century. So we've essentially have a watered down good news. And it's important that we understand this original meaning of how the good news is applied in the Bible. If we want to experience the fullness of that message, we hope you can join us through this multi-part series as we explore this very important concept of the good news and how it can enhance our walk with God and with Jesus as our King. So we hope you enjoy today's lesson exploring the first century concept of the good news. All right, the next section in our Bible 101 series, we're going to be covering the concept of the good news or the gospel. Now, Things get a little bit confusing because the word gospel, well, it's an old English word and it simply means good tidings or good news. So then if we were to make matters worse, in the second century, the early church, they added a label, the good news, that was the label, to these documents, these letters that had been written from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so they were called the good news, according to, say, John. Now, in our English, that gets turned into Gospels. So, we have the good news, the Gospel, and they're found in the Gospels. As I said, it becomes a little bit confusing because what's happened is that phrase, good news, becomes a technical term. And a technical term is when a word takes on a meaning that's different than what it originally meant, meaning it's now meaning these documents, and it's used by a community, say, Christians. So we have a term that we use together, and now that's gospel. So the good news, that's the announcement. It's found in the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And obviously, I think we know this, that good news is foundational to our Christianity. It's foundational to our faith walk. It's foundational to the way that we understand our Bible. And yet, if you go ask 10 people, what do you mean by the good news? What is the good news? You're likely to get 10 different answers. Probably more than 10, because somebody would change their mind after they had the first one. So the question we're going to be asking is, what do you mean by good news? What is the good news? I think you'll find, as I did, that the most accurate answer that we'll come up with, it's not what the majority of people believe it to be. I was quite surprised by the background to this concept of the good news and the way that scholars 
talk or write about it compared to what you hear in churches or what you might find on the internet. Now, this is very uh, personal for me because when I was finishing my final semester at seminary, I did what we called at Bethel, we called it an independent study or a directed study. But basically, by the time you're at that level, you have a lot of freedom. So it's just the student and the professor. You work together, you create a class on whatever topic you think might be profitable, maybe a certain book of the Bible, right? For instance, one semester was only on Genesis 1 through 4, translating the Hebrew, writing papers. I did another semester just on the book of Exodus. So you basically, you come up with a topic, you create a syllabus, you make sure you have enough work that gets you the proper amount of credits, and then, you know, write research papers and you do your work on your own. And so what I was doing was I did some work on the New Testament, particularly the New Testament in its literary setting, meaning the New Testament, among other writings from that time, the first century. And sometimes we forget that the New Testament wasn't written in a vacuum. It was written by real people in real time and space. And since language and culture are always attached to each other, they're inseparable, that whatever you write, how you communicate, also has to do with the distinctive cultures back then. That's part of what this ministry is, to show you the cultures of the first century or the cultures of when these documents were written. Because that helps you, they make more sense in the culture, as does everything. So if we take the New Testament like this, you start down the path. You'd say, what about the Old Testament? Now, it's not just what are the words of the Old Testament, what's the interpretation of the Old Testament? What, how did the Jewish people understand that document by the first century? Uh, one way we look at that is a, is a document, or a, there's a number of documents, they're called the Targum, and Targum is a word that just means translation. It's an Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Bible. And when the writers translated it into Aramaic from the Hebrew, they added commentary, what the community thought about that verse, and it helped the Aramaic audience understand what that text meant. So those are good ones to find out what might be some nuances there in the first century. Uh, you have the Apocrypha. It's a whole set of writings in the Pseudepigrapha, another set, very popular didn't end up in the Bible, but these are popular among the people. For instance, there's a, one called the Psalms of Solomon. It's written about 50 BC, just after Rome took over Israel. And there's a description of the coming Messiah, or the Messiah that they think is coming, and it fits remarkably well with Jesus. Um, you have the Greek writings, right? Alexander the Great spread Hellenism around uh, the ancient world. So you have Greek poets and philosophers and histories and medical texts, and they got all around. They would go through Israel. They were aware of them. You have uh, Roman philosophers and poets writing about Rome because the Roman Empire is now taking over. You have people who write histories and biographies, and, and we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. These, these had essentially been lost to humanity until the latter half of the 20th century, but it helps us understand something about the way that first century Jews thought about their text. And what's really cool, this is a great study if you ever get a chance, is the New Testament and the Dead Sea Scrolls share a lot in common. So it's a very interesting study that you can do. Um, 
One thing we'll consider is the religious propaganda of the day. These are about the gods that they said existed and the leaders of the people who were considered divine. So that's something we'll look at. And finally, you have Philo of Alexandria, Egypt. So he's a prolific writer who was trying to explain in detail the Judaism and the Jewish scripture to a Greek audience. And what you see is it helps you understand at least how someone thought about what was going on in the text. And we see that Paul uses some of the same language, and so does John. Now, the point of all of this, that I'm saying this, is that the New Testament wasn't written in a vacuum. And what we want to know, then, is how did the people of the first century view these letters? What would they have thought, right? If you were sitting in the audience and the very first time you hear the opening sentence to Mark's letter about the good news that's showing up, what would you be thinking? And what you find is that their thinking is very different than we talk about the good news today. So the study I was doing, particularly when I came to the concept of the good news, it blew my mind at how differently the Bible and scholars talk about the good news and the way that Christians and many, if not most, churches teach about the good news, right? There's a whole history and cultural meaning to the good news. And I started to think, ah, there's a chasm here. There's a chasm between the way that Bible scholars think about and write about the good news and the way that churches and Christians conceive of the good news. And it's largely because of the way that it's taught in churches or the way that it, you receive it in the church. And this has actually been well documented by seminary professors, right? There's a, there's a process of actually unlearning for someone who's grown up as a Christian, you have to unlearn when you go to seminary. Some of the ideas that are within our Christian uh, consciousness but aren't really in the text. And, you know, we at Bethel, people would call it losing your faith. Now, that didn't mean you lost your faith in God. It means that so many of the things that you thought were true, once you get into the actual scholarly work, you realize they're not. And so this is why this series, it's so important, because if we've strayed from the meaning of good news that Jesus and Paul and the other writers intended us to hear, then what we're going to end up with is a watered-down conception of the good news. Because I'll tell you what, the idea, the original meaning of the gospel flipped the world on its head. It changed the course of history. and then. Slowly over time, for various reasons, it morphs, builds up barnacles. And so each generation has to go back to that original meaning, wrestle with it to see what it means today, be curious about it, ask tough questions. And that's what we're going to try to do. We need to look at these concepts afresh. And that's what this whole Bible 101 series is aiming to do. The first installments that we had was redemption and covenant. Those are the two foundational topics of the Bible, and most Christians just aren't aware of them. The Bible is a book of redemption. The redemption is executed through a series of covenants. So we can do the same thing with the good news. All right, so the question that we're going to be asking, what do you mean by the good news? What's the concept that you have in your head? What do you think the definition is? 
are we on the same sheet of music? Because unfortunately, I don't think we are. I kind of feel like the Princess Bride. You know, he says, you keep using this word. I don't think it means what you think it means. It's exactly that. I'm not sure that we're using the word properly, even though, you know, God is so much bigger than this. He works way beyond our limited ability to, to know all these definitions. But I think that as we grow in our Christian walk, the closer we can get to that original meaning, the more profound it becomes in our own lives. So, okay, over this series of lessons, we're going to cover a wide range of topics, and they're going to all help us go deeper into this concept of the good news. And I'll try, uh, as best I can, to only use the word gospel when I'm referring to those written documents, like the Gospel of Luke. And remember, that's really what it means. The Gospel of Luke really means the good news according to Luke. It's the announcement of the good news according to Luke. So we have, uh, we have the good news. We want to ask, what is the good news? What do you mean by that? Now, the very first place we're going to go, we need to go back into the Jewish history, the history within Judaism. There is a Hebrew word that means good news. It's basar. And we want to see how it's used in the Hebrew Bible. What would the first century Jewish audience have heard when Jesus said the good news of the kingdom, particularly when we see it in Isaiah? But we also have a whole Greek history of the same word. Euangelion. This is the Greek word that we find in our New Testament. But that word in the Greek context has a whole history. How is it used in Greek writing? We'll do a little bit about what is a gospel. What was that letter considered to be? What genre of writing? You know, was it a biography? Was it a history? Was it something unique? And then Paul talks about the mystery of the gospel. He actually used mysterion with the word for gospel. And you say, well, what is he talking about? What's he getting at with the mystery? What's being revealed to us? Now, one of the things that we want to look at, and this is going to be a really important one for you to become familiar with, many scholars believe that the original proclamation by the early church, before anything was written down, see, so if Jesus, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, then you have a span. It's about 17 to 18 years before anything is written. And those first letters are Paul. So Paul is writing his letters to churches before the actual four gospels are written down. But the message exists. It's there because Paul says, I learned the gospel from other people. So he knew of the message. What was that message? What was the original proclamation? And it was all passed along verbally. That's what Jewish culture did. You would pass along a teaching verbally. So it comes from Acts chapter 10, and it's verses 34 to 43. And so this is going to be Peter and a proclamation. Be really important for you to become familiar with that, to look at the details and see what it's telling us. And then finally, what we'll do and this is probably the most important one, is we need to look at the Roman Empire at the time, particularly the cult, the imperial cult. It's a religion of the Caesars. And because the language that's used by the Bible writers, by Jesus, not only has a Jewish history, but it's got a context in that Roman Empire. And so much of that language is used 
first by the imperial cult, and then it's going to be used for the kingdom of God and Jesus. And that is going to create a collision of two kingdoms that come together. And that's what we need to understand. And all of this is pointing to one message about the word good news, and it has to do with a kingdom. The arrival of a kingdom, or the arrival of a king, and that king is Jesus. He is Lord. And so what we're also going to have to do is study something about what the concept of kingdom is. Okay, so that's going to be part of our roadmap there for what we're going to cover over the next few weeks to help us go deeper, solidify one of these foundational concepts, which is good news. Okay, now, what happened? How did our modern thinking about good news get so far removed from the original idea of good news, which is kingdom? Well, it's post-Reformation, and we live in the West very individualistically. And this all leads into kind of a morphing of an idea about the good news. So if, for instance, if you do a Google search of what is the good news, right? Or I went to chat GPT and I said, explain the good news to me. And by the way, no mention of kingdom. If you Google it and you read the top 10 websites that explain what the good news is, you will hardly read the word kingdom. When we go look, if we just, just go do an internet search, you're going to find these are the things that probably pop up the most. Forgiveness of sins. People think about the good news that God is forgiving your sins. The good news of salvation. Uh, you're saved from eternal damnation. You're not going to hell. You're going to heaven. Uh, one, one website said it was a love story. It's like, well, that's very poetic, but it doesn't have anything to do with what's in the first century. And then we get this idea of personal salvation. That's, again, our individualistic society. In our modern Western context, we're very individual. Uh, so you get a lot that's about personal, and that would never be in the first century. So we get forgiveness of sins. Do I get to go to heaven to avoid hell? I don't want to go to hell. Personal salvation is a big one, right? There's that question, is Jesus your personal Lord and Savior? It's like, well, that, that's a very modern question. It would never be asked in the first century at all. They don't think of it at all that way. Some of it about personal relationship. There's a lot, of, a lot about uh, the afterlife, sin in the afterlife. God's redemption of sinful humanity is the good news, but that's not really what the good news is getting at. Now, that's on the church, the non-scholarly side. That's what, what you'll find just if you Google or if you talk to people at church. It's probably something in line with that. But on the scholarly side, when they write about the gospel, they write things like kingdom, or more specifically, the kingdom of God. And that we're going to see that good news in the first century referred to kingdom in both the Jewish context and in the Roman Empire. And then more specifically, it's Jesus' reign as the anointed king. Jesus announces the inauguration. He's the herald at first, him and John the Baptist announcing that the kingdom is about to unfold. The kingdom of God is bursting into the kingdom of man, right? It's God is infiltrating this kingdom of, of Rome through a baby. He infiltrates through a baby, and then it's the announcement of the kingdom is bursting forth. And then we see that at the end, when, after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, he ascends to be at the right hand of the Father as the anointed one. 
he's the Messiah, or the Christ. That's the Greek word for Messiah. It means you're the anointed one. You've been anointed for a particular task. And now you are the king. You are reigning right now. And that is good news. That's what the world needs. All right, so let me give you, I've got these on your handout. There's some quotes. This is from a Bible dictionary, because I want to show you how scholars write about the good news. So this is a Bible dictionary. It happens to be called the Dictionary of Paul and His Letters. Now, Bible dictionaries, for instance, Paul and his letters, you look at all of the topics that, Paul, that are in Paul's letters, and then A to Z, and there's essays on each one, so they can help you to understand. So the Dictionary of Paul and His Letters. But it starts out, he starts out talking about the gospel and the misconceptions that we have about the gospel. And he says this, Many Protestants assert that personal justification by faith alone is the gospel or its center. That's what we've been talking about. Forgiveness of sins, personal salvation, right? So Protestants, what dominates for them about the good news is the assertion that personal justification by faith alone is the good news. He goes on, he says, when popularized this way, the gospel is primarily about how sinful humans can obtain heaven by trusting in Jesus' accomplished work on the cross. That's your typical message. Now he's going to go on to say, well, that's not the way Paul writes about it. But this is our modern post-Reformation way of thinking about the good news. But as we mentioned, the author in, in this Bible dictionary is going to mention the good news is the good news of a kingdom. It's about Jesus as the eternal king. Jesus ascending to sit at the right hand of the Father and reigning right now. He's the cosmic judge of the living and the dead. That's eternal. And so, if you call Jesus Lord as a king, then you have to faithfully obey his teaching. That's what the Bible teaches us. Right? And then we get to ask our questions. What does it mean to be a kingdom person? What's my way of being here? Not just, hey, one day I'll get to go to heaven. What am I doing to expand the kingdom right now? Do you know the path that the kingdom of God takes and how it differs from the kingdoms of men, particularly what we'll see the kingdom of Rome? So, okay, let me give you another definition. Again, it's on your handout. This is from a different Bible dictionary. This one comes from the Dictionary of Jesus and the Gospels. One of the editors, by the way, Janine K. Brown, she was one of my professors uh, in seminary, wonderful scholar. I really enjoy her books and all of her classes. She was great to have. But this book right here, it's only looking at the Gospels and Jesus. Okay? So if we look here, this is the summary of what the word gospel means. In the Synoptic Gospels, the gospel, that's euangelion, it refers primarily to the announcement of the good news that's associated with the arrival of God's kingdom. The good news is the arrival of God's kingdom, particularly in association with Jesus' mission and identity as the Messiah. That's the good news. It's a kingdom. Now, if we go back to the, I'm sorry to flip around, but this is also on your handout. I want to go back to the dictionary of Paul and his letters because the, the author goes on to say, you know, Protestants, we have a misconception of the good news. 
What does Paul think about the good news? Well, it's the same as Jesus and the same as the Gospels. He writes, Above all, for Paul, the gospel is about the Christ, the Messiah, the Christ, that's the anointed one. Messiah, that's Hebrew for the anointed one. Who's the anointed one? How do we understand this? Well, he's the Jewish, but nevertheless, universal king. That's what the Old Testament tells us. This is what, how they understood their Bible, that there would be a universal king. Now, for many people in Jesus' day, they wanted a physical king to overthrow the Romans. He says, I'm not going to be that. I'm a spiritual king. That no matter, no matter what kingdom is in charge down here, whatever the humans think, I'm the one who's actually reigning. So the gospel is not just about Jesus. It's about Jesus in his kingly capacity. That's the good news. So, okay, this is what we're going to unpack over the next few weeks. Okay? Now, I'm going I'm to give you one example. Let's see what Jesus says about it. Let's take one example from the Bible. This is from Luke. Luke 4, verse 43. What does Jesus tell us? What's his own witness? This is Jesus speaking. But he said to them, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other cities also. So notice, it's the good news of the kingdom of God. And then Jesus says, For this reason I have been sent. His mission at first is to proclaim the coming kingdom. And of course, then he's reigning after his ascension. Another way that the Gospels communicate this to us is that every single Gospel ends with the proclamation that Jesus is king, and it's done in a very subversive way, right? He's been crucified. So you think, well, what kind of king dies? That's not a very good king. When he's on the cross, the sign that Pilate puts up is that he's the king of the Jews, and therefore he's the king that's going to reign, according to the prophecies. So we have Matthew. They set up over his head the accusation against him, written, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And of course he was. Same thing in Mark, same thing in Luke. John has a whole way of presenting Jesus as the king. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, but it's a whole way of doing it that's profound when you understand kingdom and what the good news is. So, okay, all of that, it's all throughout the Bible, and what we just have to do is adjust the way our conceptions are about the word good news. And when we do, there's a, boy, you'll see it everywhere in the text, and you'll see things jump out about you, and then you start to see it in real life today. Who's Lord, right? Because what happens, what happens in the first century is that when that word goes out, when the good news goes out into the kingdom of Rome, by the way, it's going to collide with the kingdom of man. Because what we see, and I'll show you where this comes from, is that when Jesus was born, there was already a kingdom and there was already a kingdom here on earth that was claiming the good news of the birth of a Savior. And that Savior was Caesar Augustus. And Luke tells us that Caesar Augustus was reigning when Jesus was born. And so the kingdom is Rome, and Caesar Augustus is called a Savior. He's called the Son of God, and his birth, the birthday of 
Caesar Augustus was considered to be good news for the world, and the empires of the world would be benefactors of his reign to bring peace. I mean, this is all stuff that we think about Jesus. Now, how do we know this? Where does this come from? Well, archaeologically, we have the inscriptions, and you can read about it. I put a link at the bottom of, the, of page two. It's called um, the Calendar Inscription of Priene. Priene is an ancient city in, in what's modern-day Turkey. This is a picture of it now that those columns are the, the temple to Athena. And it's a crazy hike up to the top of that mountain, but it's a great view once you get to the top. Anyways, Priene, it's just south of Ephesus in Turkey. And in this room right here, and I know that doesn't look like much right there, but in this room they found an inscription, and the inscription's right here. And they have it, and you can read what it says. And they basically want to start the reckoning of time, like we reckon time from Jesus' birth. They want to reckon time from the birth of Augustus. And that his birth is the good news for the world. And this was written in 9 BC. So we have to go back and see what was the imperial cult and how are these kingdoms colliding? Because this is the question, and this is the question that must be answered in the first century and must be answered today. Who do you call Lord? That's it. And if you call Jesus Christ, the anointed one, if you call him Lord, if you're saying that Jesus is the king, then you're saying that Caesar is not. And that is a political message. And that's a political message that can and is often construed as being treasonous in our Bible. Even in the Gospels, are you claiming to be a king as Pilate is talking to Jesus? Pilate's allegiance is to a Caesar. So this is what the good news is about in the first century. It's who is king and whose kingdom is reigning. And when we choose Jesus, then the question is, how do we become kingdom people? Man may think they're in charge, but there's a greater reality beyond this physical world. There's a universal king, a cosmic judge, and he's reigning and judging right now. And he's a righteous judge. That is who you call Lord. So we want to bridge this divide. We want to help build a more solid foundation of what the kingdom of God is and what the good news is, the proclamation of this kingdom. And because the kingdom of God is a reality, it's not heaven in the future, it's right now that we can say Jesus is Lord and he can reign in your life and then we can manifest that kingdom in the world today. When we learn what it means to be part of that kingdom, how to be kingdom builders, right? We don't just say then, I believe, and then sit on the couch waiting for the return. No, your actions, you go out into the kingdom as kingdom builders, and you make the reign of God present physical reality. And so what do you mean by the good news? What's this proclamation? How do we become kingdom people then to spread this good news? Well, it starts with your own personal character. And working on that, right? When you resist the temptation to do something that you know you shouldn't do, you expand the kingdom. When you choose to forgive the person who hurt you, even though you want to hang on to the anger and be mad at them 
and take vengeance. No, forgiveness is kingdom building. When you go out and you provide for those in need, even though you selfishly want to spend the money on yourself, you're building the kingdom. When you love your neighbor because you see in them the image of God, that is when the kingdom, the reign of God, then manifests here in the physical world. Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we expand the kingdom reign of God. And it's not through human power. It's not through human might. It's through covenant, relationship, forgiveness, love. This is the path to finding peace within your heart. And this is what Jesus is showing us, not only showing us, demonstrating what the Bible's telling us, how to be kingdom people. So we're going to be digging deep, and I think you'll be surprised and sometimes even amazed at the depth of this topic, and then how it still even applies to us today. Now, in the coming weeks, I'll have some book recommendations for you. I think those will help. I'll see if I can conjure up some resources that'll help you with your conception of not only the good news, but then the kingdom, that there's a present reality of the kingdom of God, and that we can work every day to expand that around us, to manifest it in the world. And it's always the opposite of what the world tells you a kingdom is. And so that's what we want to look at. That is the good news. We have a righteous king that's reigning right now. Now you look around and you think, but I don't see the, I don't see the kingdom. That's right, because he's left it up to us. It's our hands and feet that go out and manifest the kingdom of God through our very being in the world. And that expands the kingdom. Okay, so that's our introduction. That's what we're looking at today for the good news. And there'll be more in the weeks ahead. <laughs>